You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, Bill Powers, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, recipient of the North Carolina State Bar John B. McMillan Distinguished Service Award, and a founding member of the Center for Legal Education and Advocacy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Law Talk. Today, I'm joined with Chris Beto, attorney extraordinaire and uh, all-around great guy. Good afternoon, Chris. Good afternoon. It's good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, this is our first uh, new co- podcast, excuse me, of uh, 2022. So, Happy New Year to our listeners. And um, last week, the North Carolina Corps of Appeals came out with... Um, frankly, a bunch of uh, new opinions, some published, some unpublished. And we occasionally look through the different opinions that we find are interesting for law talk. We actually, I actually read all the opinions that come out, especially if they involve criminal defense or family law matters. And um, this is an interesting one that involves uh, embezzlement, uh, crimes of dishonesty and theft is what attorneys may uh, call it. And uh, this particular podcast probably is a little bit more interesting to legal professionals law students, although I guess anyone who has a general interest in criminal laws may find it um, of of value or help. And it's uh, Chris and I basically talking about um, a case summary of sorts. So the case is um, formerly known as North Carolina versus Thomas Wayne Steele. Sometimes lawyers call that state v. Steele. It's a North Carolina Court of Appeals opinion, 2022. So that's 2022 NCCOA 39-39 probably so new they don't have the site yet. And if you're an attorney, you know what sites mean. Uh, it was filed January 18th of 2022. It's a case that comes out of Pamlico County, opinion written um, by Susan Zachary for the court. And um, sometimes uh, I'm not an appellate person, but I think they have a period of time, the defendant may have a period of time to appeal it. And so it may not be binding uh, precedent um, until after that time period, but it's, it's probably instructional and helpful. Uh, I think it's important to point out that neither Chris nor I or anyone at the Powers Law Firm uh, have any affiliation with the case, and we're just reading the fact pattern like um, everyone else who reads the case law. So, Chris, if you could maybe just give us you know, a brief summary of what what's going on with the case. Yeah, the um, <clears throat> the defendant uh, became very close with um, the victim in this case, Lily Monk, and her husband, Pastor Mike Monk. Um, They developed a familial relationship over the years. In fact, um, the defendant called Miss Monk and Pastor Monk dad and mom, and they referred to him as their son. Um, Pastor Monk passed away, and um, even the defendant was the one who gave the eulogy at his funeral. Um, After he passed away, the mother went through a very tough time. She said that his death almost took her out, and she couldn't make it without him. Um, And she had very little experience handling finances, and she asked the defendant if he would help. And, in fact, the defendant said that he would be happy to help. Um, Miss Monk made him the joint holder in some of the bank accounts that she had. And further on down the road, she also executed a power of attorney, granting defendant um, (laughs) power of attorney over all of her finances. Um, And... She also drafted a will, making defendant the executor of the will, 
also leaving a majority of the estate to the defendant. Um, the case deals with issues of the defendant um, abusing this fiduciary relationship, basically utilizing these accounts to cover a bunch of personal expenses and pretty much um, abusing that relationship to his own benefit. Yeah, so uh, these cases, um, crimes of theft vary from different degrees. You'll occasionally hear of misdemeanor cases like maybe misdemeanor larceny, shoplifting, unlawful concealment. And this is kind of the top of the pile, at least for um, state charges, um, because, well, embezzlement charges are serious, but then there's an amount and value that we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. So um, <clears throat> this is a fact pattern that um, I guess there were indictments or superseded indictments for exploitation of an older adult and an embezzlement of $100,000 or more. And that means uh, something. So um, for lawyers and, and law students, uh, legal issue number one, the thing that they, the Court of Appeals tends to address are the original motions and the standards of review. In this instance, uh, the appellant, the defendant in the case, uh, appealed through counsel um, a denial of uh, the motion to dismiss. Uh, there were several different reasons in this particular case, but the court pointed out that um, in reviewing a denial of a motion to dismiss, they base it on the um, on those involving insufficiency of evidence. They they review those de novo. De novo is Latin for of new. Um, that may be a literal translation or anew. It means that they're not bound by any um, prior court's, I guess, inference of the facts. They can look at things fresh and decide what they want to do. In the opinion, the court uh, basically said a motion to dismiss is denied properly when there is substantial evidence of each element of the offense charge and defendant um, being the perpetrator of that alleged offense. Substantial evidence is um, a legal definition, a term of art. It's evidence, such relevant evidence that a reasonable mind might accept as adequate to support. And this may come as a surprise uh, for maybe law students, <clears throat> excuse me, that that evidence is uh, viewed in the light most favorable to the state or the state's given benefit of every easeable, a reasonable inference drawn um, therefrom. And um, when the state offers evidence, even if it's conflicting with other evidence presented of the crime charge, um, the court writes that the uh, defendant's motion to dismiss must be denied. Now, Chris, you previously actually clerked um, at the appellate level and um, is based on your background, uh, how, do, how does the court uh, approach this? Is a clerk like say, OK, here are the different standards or does everyone just sort of know what's what's going in on the case as far as um, how the court's going to review the matter? Well, usually there's a primary issue and the judge will ask the clerks to research that issue and provide a memorandum as to whether they think um, – you know, the appellant's case is worthy of being heard or even whether that issue is even a viable issue to be heard before the court. Um, usually the judge has an inkling of how they're going to rule on a certain case and they'll present their version of what they think and then they'll ask the clerks to draft a memo based on that. Right. So obviously there may be a general idea about the case going in, but I think minds are not made up until the homework's done. Is that correct? That's correct. Now tell me a little bit, um, you know, I have legal argument number one, what is embezzlement? And um, uh, 
embezzlement in North Carolina is um, different than, than, say, um, larceny by an employee or felony larceny by an employee. So, Chris, um, what does what North Carolina define as embezzlement? What are the factors that we're looking at in court? The primary factor is it has to involve a person <clears throat> of trust. Um, basically, what that means, it applies to any person who is a guardian, administrator, executor, trustee, or any receiver or any other fiduciary. A fiduciary holds a responsibility. Um, they have to act in the best interests of the person they're serving. Um, embezzlement is also defined as embezzle or fraudulently or knowingly and willfully misapply or convert to his own use or take, make away with, or secrete with intent to embezzle or fraudulently or knowingly and willfully misapply or convert to his own use any money, goods, or other chattels, banknote, check, or order for the payment of money issued by or drawn on any bank or other corporation, or any treasury warrant, treasury note, bond, or to take any other person or corporation, unincorporated association, or organization, which shall have come into his possession or under his care, shall be guilty of a felony. Now, I know that that is... A lot to take in, so I want to uh, shorten that to a, a sentence that is more um, digestible and more succinct than the uh, statutory definition. So, you know, in short, to constitute embezzlement, the property in question initially must be acquired lawfully pursuant to a trust relationship and then wrongfully converted. Right. And I think it's fair to say that this is... Um, an expansive statute, which means it's meant to cover a, a wide range of different type of um, banking instruments, notes, things of values, as well as types of different types of relationship. If you're particularly interested in the general statute, the criminal statute that applies, it's North Carolina General Statute, Section 1414-9090, um, subsection A as in Apple 3. And um, and it, it, you know, what Chris gave was actually the abbreviated version. It goes on and on about this. But I think one of the primary uh, differences between an embezzlement charge, uh, and sometimes we have people that work for companies and they're accused of taking something from the company. And, you know, they ask, what's the difference between embezzlement and larceny by an employee? Um, embezzlement means that you are entrusted specifically for the care and control of, of, an, of something of value. It could be money, it could be um, cash, checking accounts, banking accounts, it could be real property, personal property. Whereas felony larceny by employee may be that you as an employee have access to it you're, because of the nature of your employment and they, they trust you to work in the place, but you're not necessarily entrusted with it as in uh, the disposition, ultimately the disposition of it. Uh, it's a pretty fine point um, uh, of law. Um, the substantive effect is that basically you take something that doesn't belong to you and that that's kind of the, the every person's view of uh, larceny. Uh, Chris, what's the, um, I call it the big tamale, but what's the big deal with $100,000 in the um, allegation? Well, the $100,000 elevates this to a whole nother level of penalties. Um, or, if the value embezzled is less than $100,000, it's a Class H felony. If it's $100,000 or more, it's elevated to a Class C felony. Um, and that means if, even if you have no prior record, the top of the presumptive range, um, if convicted on embezzling $100,000 or more, is 73 to 100 months. Right. So, I mean, once you hit that mark, 
um, you're looking at some pretty serious time if you're convicted. Right. And that isn't just a substantive difference. Um, it is a substantial difference in time. To give you an example, in, in North Carolina, we classify different levels of offenses, class A, B1, B2, and then C all the way down the I. <clears throat> There's a pretty substantial difference between a class C as in Charlie felony and a class H felony. Class I felony, for example, for prior record level one, you're not even really looking at the possibility of jail time. And uh, class C, prior record level one, um, $100,000 or more in this instance, uh, is actually more serious than armed robbery. Okay. And there, class C is really towards the top. And that's top of the presumptive, assuming there aren't additional factors in aggravation, um, which is... Um, or prior record level points based on um, your history. If you have more questions about that, I would tell you, I'd encourage you to consult the, uh, you can Google the um, felony sentencing chart um, guidelines. It's available at carolinaattorneys.com. That's our uh, firm website. And um, it's it's a big deal. So um, <clears throat> issue number one <clears throat> is, excuse me, is what is embezzlement? Issue number two is what's the, uh, the big deal with um, $100,000 and the statute's written $100,000 or more, and then um, it may be a cumulative value. And then issue number three is what is a fiduciary relationship? So Chris, you kind of go in to that a little bit. That, that again is a, is a term of art. I mean, that's what lawyers use. Yeah. Fiduciary relationship um, basically means there's a relationship created by a power of attorney between a principal um, and then turning in effect is fiduciary in nature. Um, so basically, a fiduciary is someone who is entrusted um, with something of value, and they're they have primary responsibility for doing or, or managing that thing of value in the best interests of the individuals or corporation that has entrusted them with something of value. Um, however, a fiduciary relationship may arise under a variety of circumstances. It, it exists in all cases where there has been a special confidence reposed in one who in equity and good conscience is bound to act in good faith and with due regard to the interests of one reposing confidence. You know, this was an interesting issue. At least I, I found it interesting in the case because I think there was a, um, and I think the court ultimately came down with it. it's a, it's a difference with our distinction about a difference, but in this particular instance, there there was actually a power of attorney was executed. There was some mention that they went to an attorney's office and they, you know, checked off all the boxes and signed off on it. Um, and so they were actually made attorney in fact. But I think the Court of Appeals said, well, that's great. <clears throat> in this instance, that is correct. We had it. But it doesn't necessarily require a legal filing or a legal execution. It could be inferred from the relationship, meaning that um, – uh, fiduciary relationship may arise, using their language, under a variety of circumstances, which means that uh, the court takes into consideration um, the the relationship between the parties, and 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 frankly, it's not terribly unusual for these cases to involve things other just an employee or a an officer of a bank. It could be a closely held relationship, you know, in in this instance where. They weren't related by blood, but they referred to each other as mom and dad or, or son and daughter. It was, a, and it was a close, close relationship. So um, the intent for uh, uh, embezzlement is, is what, Chris? What does the court like, talk about the intent, the mens rea, the evil mind? Uh, in order to prove intent, <clears throat> intent is uh, to willfully or corruptly use or misapply the property of another 
for purposes other than those for which the agent or fiduciary received it. So basically, you're entrusted with something of value, you're required to manage it in a certain way, and you instead use it for your own purposes, um, would be, you know, an example of misappropriating funds for your own use. Right. So it could be paying off a credit card or buying a car or putting a down payment on your house. It could be, you know, taking cash out and just spending it. There, there are a lot of different financial tools to do that. Now, this case had another, and I call it legal issue number four, interesting twist. Um, because at some point, um, some formalized um, paperwork was filed with the bank or banks, uh, in this instance, saying that they were essentially co-owners of the um, bank account, whatever, big bank account, savings account. And defendant argued that because there was um, money that was illegally titled in his name that he was entitled to use, you can't embezzle something that um, was yours to start with. So um, it, because it was a joint account, I can't embezzle what was mine. How'd the court respond to that? Well, they, I mean, they thought that was meritless. Um, basically what they said, the statute that the defendant was trying to apply basically serves to protect the financial institutions, um, specifically section 54 C 165 governed savings banks. It is essentially the same as section 53 C six dash six and section 54 dash one Oh nine point five eight. Um, the court said these statutes simply provide in some that the financial institution may safely pay either of the two persons. So um, the defendant basically misinterpreted that statute. The purpose of those statutes is to protect the financial institutions. It has nothing to do with um, the rights of joint people in a bank account. Yeah, that surprised me because um, it said... Uh, it is well established that these statutes are, and I bolded this area, for the protection of the financial institution only and absent any other evidence are not dispositive as the ownership of the funds. So it's a type of protection that if you, um, I guess, go after the bank and say, not in, authorize the withdrawal of that account. The bank says, well, you both are on the account in your name and you know that's what we do. We actually see this um, a fair amount in divorce family law. Uh, type of actions uh, where there could be joint checking or joint savings accounts and someone comes in and um, takes the funds because they're both entitled to do that. Uh, so uh, th this is a good read. It's um, I think it gives you some basic tenets of law. If you're a law student, um, check out uh, State v. Steele. And um, if you have further questions about what's embezzlement or what's the difference between embezzlement and felony larceny by an employee, uh, Feel free to give uh, Chris or me a call at uh, Powers Law Firm, carolinaattorneys.com at 704-342-4357. Anything to add, Chris? Uh, nothing further. It was, <laughs> a, it was a, a riveting and enlightening experience. It was. It, it's an interesting uh, case because uh, even with no prior record, you're looking at, um, what is that, six to eight yeah, active? Uh, well, I think that... Uh, they don't differentiate between armed robbery and this because basically you're doing armed robbery with a pen or right. by, you know, siphoning funds through a secret bank account. So they don't see the difference. It's basically white collar armed robbery. Right. It's a confidence. It's a crime of confidence. And that's yeah. where they, the term actually comes from a con 
uh, person, a con man, is that you rely on someone's competence relationship and um, take and abuse that situation financially. So, well, thanks so much, Chris. And it was a pleasure talking with you. And please make sure to join us or uh, the next episode of Law Talk. Bill Powers, your resource for legal issues and legislation, practice tips, professionalism, and policy discussions. Want to talk to Bill Powers? Call 704-342-HELP. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decision.